uh, that is on the move. And it's exciting to be part of a church that has a bat flying to the bathroom of one of our pastors and get drowned. And then what John didn't tell you is he grilled it, actually, after, after that. Um, not, not really, I don't, I don't think. But we, what he maybe has done is put, like, the bat wing on the window, so that way no bats will fly and they'll be, be bats beware sort of thing. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookside. Uh, we say this a lot, but, but if this is the first time you're hearing it, Welcome. If it's not the first time you're hearing it, still, welcome. For, for all you regular attenders that call Brookside Church home, glad to have you here. And for all of you that are just visiting us for the first time or the third time, we're glad to have you here as well. One of the games that I think is, is probably hardwired into, into at least every boy that I know. <laughs> that's what I know, so that's what I'll talk about. But one of these games that's hardwired into every boy that I know is the game King of the Hill. Everybody kind of have that game in your minds. You guys know how it works where uh, kind of pile of dirt, pile of rocks, pile of anything. And given enough time, eventually there will be a kid on the top of that pile doing everything he can to maintain his position while all the other kids are kind of swarming around the hill doing everything they can to unseat the king. No holds barred is always how it's played too. And, And the goal of the game is simple. You care about yourself, you're concerned about yourself, and, and the most valuable thing is, is to maintain your position at the top of the heap. The most important thing is to maintain your position in the center of activity, in the center of everything that's going on. It's been a long time since I've played King of the Hill proper. It would be kind of awkward <laughs> for me to do it right now, maybe, uh, but but I think nevertheless, it's, it's easy for me and it's easy for, for a lot of us to carry this king of the hill mentality into our lives as adults, where what we do becomes about us, or let me personalize it, becomes about me, my comfort, my desires, my way, me, myself, I. I can think of all sorts of specific examples of this in my own life very quickly. I'm the parent of four small-ish boys, and so, so every day it seems like something is being challenged, rules are being tested, authority is being bumped up against to kind of see, see who's the king of the house in our home. And I wish my responses to my boys in those situations were always exactly what they should be, to sit them down, okay, son, let's talk about character here. I, I, I wish that's what I always did, but, but it's not. Because if I'm honest, there are times when, when, my, when my first inclination is to, is to expect obedience, prompt them towards obedience, because it's most comfortable for me. Or if we're in a public place, pretty, pretty easily people will see kind of my family, uh, four boys in public is, is chaos. But, but when I kind of prompt them gently towards obedience, when we're at Hy-Vee or Target or whatever grocery store, a lot of times my, my concern isn't their good, but so people don't look weird at me as, oh, he's that kind of parent. I've gotten used enough to that look that it doesn't bother me as much anymore. But, but nevertheless, my concern is me, myself, my comfort, my desires. Or when I'm at work during the week, there are times, just like all of us, there are times when, when something I say is challenged or something I've done, people say, oh, you should have done it that way. And, and immediately, I, I, I wish I responded well to that and received that. Oh, yeah, great point. 
But too often, my first reaction is, is to have my blood pressure go up a degree or two, to have my temperature go up a degree or two, for, for my body to tense up and to go into defensive posture. And this is because I want to protect myself, right? My way, my desires, what I want. Right now, a lot of you counselors and psychologists out there are psychoanalyzing me, taking notes, and you're going to send me a card. But, but before, before you do that, let, let me remind us that this isn't just me. I know it's not just me. I think in all of us, there's this, there's this, there's this tendency or, or there's, there's this inclination to build our lives around ourself. For, for millennia, Pastors and Christians have had a category for this. They've said that sin turns us in on ourselves, is what it is. Sin turns us in on ourselves. We're the king of the hill, right? And this inclination to organize our lives around me, around us, this is what God's word is going to address today. It's what God's word is going to help us with. Because we all know that we need to be helped in this area. I don't like it when I start taking some of those king of the hill tendencies. I don't like myself when I'm like that. And I know the people closest to me don't like it that much either. Nobody likes organizing their lives around themselves. But it's still something that comes so naturally to us. So we need to see what an alternative could be. And we're going to see that. Here in John chapter 3, in John chapter 3, we meet this guy named John the Baptist. And we learn that there's this whole other way for us to organize our lives than just around ourselves. There's, there's a better way, a way that we should lean into, a way we should be eager to accept, even if that means we are not the king of the hill of our life anymore. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, if you've got your iPad or your iPhone, Go there with me. Otherwise, it's going to come up on the screens. You can follow along there or your other tablet or smartphone of choice other than just the I version. I'll say that. But so, so John chapter 3, picking up in verse 22, says, After this, after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, that's in the first part of chapter 3, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside and uh, Jesus spent some time with them and baptized now John, John the Baptist, is who this is talking about, also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and so people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So they, so they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you, the, 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 the one on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, this is talking about Jesus here, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. So here's what's going on. John the Baptist and Jesus both have baptizing ministries going on kind of underneath them and they're close enough to each other that, that John's disciples are aware of Jesus' baptisms that are going on, aware of what's going on there. And uh, in the course of this story that we read about here, there's some argument that arises between John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. We aren't given any more than that about what the argument's about, but we know where it leads. 
because somehow this argument led John's disciples and this certain Jew apparently to start comparing baptism ministries. To say, here's what's going on over here in John the Baptist's baptism ministry. But then to, to draw awareness and attention to the fact, to, to what was going on in Jesus' baptism ministry. So again, we get verse 26, this issue. They come to John, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus. He's baptizing and everyone is going to him. This is a king of the hill moment, or it could be anyway, for John the Baptist. It seems like his disciples want it to be. They want, they want John to somehow to go on the, the offensive or the defensive, but they just want him to do something to reinsert himself into the situation because they're saying, Jesus, don't you see what's happening? We're being superseded. We're being ignored. People are going to Jesus. They're leaving us. The crowds are thinning. All of us, if we were in that position, would, would do something, would feel the way these disciples are feeling. We'd feel threatened. We'd feel diminished. But let's look at what Jesus or what John the Baptist says. So there's very easy opportunity for him to reinsert himself. And here's what he says in verse 27. So to this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I, that I said, I've been saying all along that I'm not the Messiah. I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. And then, and, and then against our king of the hill tendency, verse 30. John the Baptist says of Jesus, he must become greater. I must become less. And so, so John doesn't call a strategy meeting. John doesn't call a pity party and say, okay, we're, we're being superseded by Jesus. Here's what we do to try to, to, try to figure out what, where our losses are at, anything like that. No, John says we're being superseded by Jesus. Good. That's the way it's supposed to be. John doesn't just mention the centrality of Jesus here. He relishes in it. He waxes eloquent about it. John says the centrality of Jesus is something for us not to be threatened by. It's something we should savor. Because Jesus is at the center, so we should, we should want him to be at the center of our lives. So let me boil this down to, to one memorable statement or one, one major point. That, that everything that I say this morning is kind of built around or related to in some way. Here, here's that statement. More Jesus, period. Less us, period. And then the most counterintuitive thing up there, and that's a good thing. More Jesus, less us shouldn't put us on our heels. We should embrace it. Let's look, let's look more at just a couple of verses in this passage. We'll look a lot at verses 29 and 30. And, and let's draw out from Scripture two reasons why we should run to the centrality of Jesus. Why we should want to say, more Jesus, less us. First reason we should be drawn to the greatness of Jesus is because of how Jesus' identity, how it shapes our identity 
Or here's another statement I like even better. It says the same thing, but, but we should run to the greatness of Jesus because, because of who we become because of Jesus. The, the question we're asking here is, is how does Jesus' identity shape our identity? Well, John tells us how in verse 29 in this wedding ceremony picture that he draws for us. There are three characters in the image John draws for us. There's the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, so to speak. This is who John is. He's the support role. He's there to to point to the groom. In that groom, the second character is Jesus. And then the third character is, is God's people, is the church. This is the bride. We know from from Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, there's a lot made of this picture of Christ as bridegroom and his people as the bride. So let's look a little bit more closely at those two pieces of this picture. Christ as bridegroom, first of all. How, How does the groom shape our identity? In a traditional wedding, the groom helps give shape to the identity in a way we've all seen at many of the weddings we've been to where, where the bride takes the name of the groom. 13 years ago today, actually, my, my wife decided to allow my identity to somehow shape hers and that she changed her last name to Weeby when she said I do. She allowed my identity to, to again, redirect where hers was going. This is what John's trying to say here. As the groom, Christ should be shaping our identity. But so then how is our identity shaped by Christ? What does it mean that we're the bride? Now, if you're a guy, you probably aren't immediately drawn into this statement. Or if you've been watching too much Bridezilla on TV, you're probably not too drawn into this statement. But let me show you from Scripture that the image of bride is rich. We should all be drawn to it. Here's why. First of all, this image of bride, it conveys value and worth. We're not going to go there, but just write down Ephesians 5 in your notes. Because there in that passage, we learn from the Apostle Paul that Christ loved the church enough to give himself up for her. Brookside, what could communicate value and worth and meaning more than that? That Christ gave himself up for you. I know that, that for, for many of us, questions of, of meaning, of worth, of value are common. Sometimes very frequently throughout our weeks we ask, am I valuable? Do I have worth? Sometimes this just happens a few times throughout our lives. But these are questions that are common to all of us. And as the bride of Christ, the answer to those questions of meaning and value and worth They're answered with a resounding yes, 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 you have value. Yes, you have worth. You have worth because of of whose you are, because you are the bride of Christ. This image of bride also conveys purity. What we need to appreciate here is that this purity as Christ's bride, it's not something we achieve for ourselves, but it's something Christ has achieved for us. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, us being clothed in that. And so when we pull this imagery together, groom and bride, we see that that Christ as central, it doesn't erase our identity. No, it puts it in perspective. 
No, we're, we're not central. We're not. We're not the king of the hill. But from here, we see that that's not a bad thing. Because we still have value and worth and purity because of Christ. So the first reason, we, sh- we, we should run to embrace Christ as our king. The first reason, we should, we should love the fact that more Jesus, less us, is because of who that makes us. But the second reason why we should want Jesus to be central in our lives is because Jesus' greatness is for our good. The greatness of Jesus is for our good. Now, too often we think there's some vat or pool of greatness, that as greatness goes up in one area, it's got to go down for everybody else. That's how we think. When somebody gets a promotion at work, that means everybody else missed out. We think there's some sort of inverse relationship for you mathematicians out there between Jesus' greatness and our good. We say, as Jesus' greatness goes up, that must mean somehow that comes at our expense. I've heard people say words very similar to that to me. Or we think that Jesus' greatness means that God is some sort of egomaniac who just loves the attention to himself. Again, that must mean that that comes at our expense because if you've ever been around somebody who loves themselves, you know that the other people around them, their lives just get smaller as the egomaniac's uh, life gets bigger in his mind. But no, Scripture says that's just the opposite. Jesus' greatness doesn't come at our expense. Jesus' greatness is for our good. This plays out in the story right here with John the Baptist. So keep your, keep your thumb in John chapter 3. Let's read verse 29 again. I'll read it for you if you're not there. Just listen along with me. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. So that's, that's the, wedding image we've, we've, the wedding imagery we've seen. But then listen to this. The friend of the bridegroom is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. So John the Baptist sees no tension between the greatness of Jesus and his joy. Instead, Jesus being great is what helps him say, my joy is complete. I know very few people who can say that, who say my joy is complete. We're looking for joy. We find it underneath the greatness of Jesus. A few weeks ago, Steve was preaching on John chapter 2 and said something very similar, very appropriate, uh, related to joy that I want to draw on again this morning. So, so let's pull up that quote again just to, to talk about the joy that Jesus offers us. Here's what Steve said a handful of weeks ago. Jesus came to bring joy. Joy that totally satisfies and joy that never ends. Some people have said that Christianity is anti-joy, that it wants to take away our joy, and that there's no joy in following Jesus. Some people think that Christians are people who spend their entire lives looking at others and saying, probably in a grumpy voice with their angry fists in the air, saying, I don't find that funny. But no, no, the very opposite is true. Jesus comes to bring joy, incredible joy, joy that totally satisfies and joy that never ends. When John the Baptist is saying, my joy is complete, that's what he's talking about. He gets the fact that Jesus brings joy and that that joy counterintuitively is experienced as he becomes great and we live our lives underneath him. 
Jesus' greatness is for our good because of the joy that he brings. But there's more. Let's, let's look at one other passage in Scripture where we see how Jesus' greatness is displayed to be for our good. Let's pull up Mark chapter 10, verse 42. God's word says there, Jesus called them together, his disciples, and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then listen to this, verse 45. This is important. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' greatness does not come at our expense. No. Jesus shows that he himself came to, not to be served, but to serve. Jesus uses his greatness for good, for service. We see that all throughout the Gospels. Take your pick of your example that you want, we can show that. But then Jesus one-ups himself and he says, this isn't only to show that you should serve. He doesn't only use his greatness that way. But he says, I'm not just here to serve, I'm here to sacrifice. Jesus uses his greatness to give of himself for us. That's what he means in verse 45 when he says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. What that's talking about is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, where as, as the God-man, as, as the king of creation, as the greatest person ever, Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin for us. So we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who has every reason to entitlement, takes no advantage of that. But he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So for Jesus, greatness is never something to leverage. Greatness is never something by which he can say, okay, now I can coast. Jesus says greatness is connected to our good. Do we see that, Brookside? In this series, the, the questions we've been asking pretty much every week as we've tracked through the Gospel of John, are who is Jesus and what does that mean for us? John the Baptist gives his answers to those questions for us here in John chapter 3. Who is Jesus? He's the bridegroom. He's central. He's supreme. He's at the top of our lives, not us. And what does that mean for us? Yes, it means he's greater, we're less. But we should receive that eagerly because only within that understanding do we really see ourselves for who we are as his bride. Only within that understanding do we see that his greatness is for our good and the sacrifice Christ achieved for us. Jesus' greatness is for our good. So we should say eagerly, more Jesus, less us. And that's a good thing. But how do we apply this? What might this look like in our lives? 
let me give you two very practical examples. First, first application, make John 3.30 into a prayer of yours this week and this summer and moving forward. Turn this statement, he must become greater, I must become less, into the cry of your heart. And I firmly believe that as we do that, as we make God central, as we seek to make him central, then all sorts of bullet points, very practical bullet points, will come to our minds for how that should look. Because as I pray, he must become greater, I must become less, that sends out ripples into how I parent. So that's going to mean something for my relationship with my boys. That's going to mean something for my relationship with Carrie. That's going to mean something for how I use my free time and how I relate to my neighbors and my coworkers and in my community. He must become greater. I must become less. Will drive us to some very practical applications that I can't answer for you, but I can guarantee you that if this prayer is the desire of our heart, it will lead there. So, so make John 3.30 your prayer this summer. I think it'll take root in your, in, in your heart if you do that and become part of who you are. But second application is, is just focus on Jesus. Because we all know that it's true that if, that if we're trying to be less in our lives, the way for us to forget about ourselves isn't to try to forget about yourselves. No, the way to forget about yourself is to focus on, on someone infinitely greater, infinitely better, infinitely more worthy than me. And that person we see here in John chapter 3 and the rest of the gospel is Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Stay immersed in this, in this book, in this gospel throughout this series. And then after that, continue to read through the gospels. As you read through the rest of the Bible, never get far away from the question, what can this tell me about how I understand Jesus, my need for him, and what he's come to accomplish for me? Focus on Jesus. Put other people into your life that can help you focus on Jesus. We need community that way. That's why community groups are so essential because we can't focus on Jesus if we fill our minds all the time with other things. Focus on Jesus. For some of you this morning, these steps of application are the first time you, you've ever tried anything like this. Let me encourage you. It's okay. That, just know you'll stumble a little bit along the way because we don't give up the top of the heap of our lives very easily. But let me encourage you all the same to say, this is, is, is exactly the direction we're built to be headed. For us not to be the king of the hill of our lives, but for Jesus to be. So, so, so if you're taking some of these very initial steps for the first time this morning, if you want to commit to that, tell the person who brought you here that you're going to try this out. Talk with me or another pastor here at Brookside or somebody in the blue shirts. We'd love to talk with you about how this takes shape in our lives. But, but for all of us, if we've been following Jesus for any length of time, we know that, that even though we place Jesus on the throne of our life in a big way once, every day there's a line that, that reappears challenging the authority of Jesus for first place in our life. And at the front of that line is me. I'm always the first one to want to assert myself over Christ's good and supreme authority over me. So, so for all of us, 
even if you've been a Christ follower for a long time, we know that these sorts of applications aren't something we're ever done with. But let me encourage you to continue praying John 3.30. Continue focusing on Jesus. Because that's where fullness of joy is. That's where we see Jesus' greatness is for our good. As we do this, Brookside, it gives me goosebumps to think where this sort of thing could lead us as individuals, but also as a church. Think about what it would look like for a church to be so, so committed to Jesus being great and us forgetting about ourselves that all the spotlight is on Christ. That's the sort of church we want to be. That's the sort of individual and husband and dad that I want to be. It gives me goosebumps to think how that could trickle out into our lives. So let's pursue that vision. It's a, it's a great vision, isn't it? More Jesus, less us, and that is a good thing. Well, this morning we want to finish this service by observing communion or the Lord's Supper. This, this is time that we take as a church each month to very intentionally create space in the life of of, of our congregation for us to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross and what that means for us. And let's be sure and appreciate how the Lord's Supper, how communion, how it intersects with what we've been talking about this morning. Because think about it. What better expression of Jesus' greatness being for our good is there than what we're about to observe in communion? What better expression of Jesus' greatness being for our good is there than his sacrifice for us on the cross? What better proof of your value and worth is there than the groom giving himself up for the bride? So, so now I'd like to call our host forward. Host, go ahead and just begin distributing the trays. A couple things as those go around. A lot of you know this. As those go around, reach deep and grab two cups stacked on top of each other into the tray. We've got the, um, the bread and the cup together stacked on top of one another. So that's the first thing to know. Second thing to know is that at Brookside, we celebrate what we call an open communion. And all that that means is that we invite everyone here who's a follower of Jesus Christ to participate in this service with us, to take the bread and the cup and use this, and for all of us, use this as a chance to reflect on Christ's death his resurrection, and what that means for us. As those are going around, go ahead and hang on to the, the, the cups while you've got them. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning and just give you space for silence. Rob's not going to come play guitar. There's going to be no piano, nothing over the speakers. We're going to give you three or four minutes just of silence to reflect on Christ's sacrifice, on Christ's greatness displayed in sacrifice, and what that means for us. There will be some, some verses that we've mentioned this morning on the screens to prompt some reflection. But no, we're going to give you three minutes of silence. So, so use this time well. And then after three or four minutes, I'll come back up and lead us through taking the bread and the cup together.